1: Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com weightloss weight loss. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in Psychoanalysis. I'm August Baker, your host today. Today, we're talking about a theoretical book, uh, but one that when I read it really affected me emotionally, to tell you the truth. I kind of read it with a lump in my throat, and I talked to someone else who had uh, the same reaction. So, it's a pretty special book. It's called Vitalization in Psychoanalysis Perspectives on Being and Becoming 2021. And I'd like to just mention a couple of reviews before I welcome our guests. Uh, Ann Alvarez, reviewing the book, said the clinical accounts are very moving and read like chapters out of a terrific novel. There is endless patience, endurance, stamina terrible boredom, suspense, and real excitement for patients and analysts alike. And Stephen Cooper, kind of sketching the history of psychoanalytic thought uh, says, she says this is the kind of cutting edge right now. Um, And he kind of traces a movement, starting with an older focus in psychoanalysis on interpretation and, and knowledge, and then coming to Winnicott and Beyond, and eventually to a focus on deficits and symbolization. And now, this current work on experiences and metaphors of vitalization. So, our two guests, Dr. Amy Schwartz Cooney, as a private practice, teaches, writes supervisors, and is joint editor in chief of psychoanalytic dialogues. Welcome, Amy. Thank you. And Rachel Sofer also has private practice, teaches, writes, supervisors, supervises, and is editor in chief of Psychoanalytic Perspectives. Welcome, Rachel. Thank you. So the book is Vitalization in Psychoanalysis, and I imagine some of our listeners, all of our listeners, have heard the term psychoanalysis, and probably each of them has their own associations to it. What um, what are we meaning by psychoanalysis in this context?
2: Rachel, do you want to start?
0: Oh, sure. Um, there's that's such a good question, and there are so many different definitions of what psychoanalysis means, and it's changed so much over the years um, since since the beginning with Freud. Right now, to me, what psychoanal- psychoanalysis means is it's a way of thinking. It's a way of um, framing interactions between. Patients and patient and there and um, analyst, Um, and so it's it's kind of for for me it's just a a state of mind and a way of thinking. What about you, me? What do you think?
2: I agree with I I agree with that, and I think that it's a project that I regard to be about uh, growth and transformation. So it's an intense um, emotional process, and Mm -hmm. because we are both relational psychoanalysts, are. I think I can speak for both of us um, to say that we do really feel that the centrality of the relationship in the room, within the patient, between their uh, real others, fantasied others, past, present, is at the heart of what is transformative and mutative about psychoanalysis. Mm Yeah,
1: absolutely. Yeah, and I um, I was actually, just before we started talking, I um, mentioned to Rachel that I um, had benefited from a, a, reading an article she wrote about uh, relational psychoanalysis with Stephen Kuchuk. And um, she, you say that there might be some misunderstanding that um, relational psychoanalysis is more here and now secondary process material and that it's not really dealing with the unconscious and you're saying that's kind of a mischaracterization
0: yeah it's i mean i I think it's it's created it's kind of a straw man argument that people use to kind of discredit the relational um perspective the relational outlook on psychoanalysis um so it's it doesn't take away anything there's nothing lost in um this perspective of, of looking at the interaction between the two and and, and that being the way that things change the transformative um point is between the couple the the patient therapist couple um, so it's it includes everything and includes unconscious to unconscious communication and includes the uh, bodily physical um, uh, sensations and um reverie and dreams and all of that
1: It's it's and so it's um, the analyst being more willing to be personally involved and to work with their subjective reactions
2: to acknowledge that they are personally involved and that they are subjective. Mm -hmm. So, you know, relational psychoanalysis just historically evolved as a critique of the classical model and the notion of neutrality an abstinence with an acceptance of the inevitability of the analyst's participation conscious and unconscious. And I think in these um, contrasts between classical and and relational, like Rachel was saying, that there can be these reductive straw dogs. Mm -hmm, And yes, it's true, I think, that relational psychoanalysis maybe runs the risk of being too based in the here and now and too much about uh, the mutual process in the here and now, whereas the classical model runs the risk perhaps of being too much about solely the interpsychic world of the patient. But actually I think relational analysis comprises both and probably as does the contemporary Freudian perspective. We just happen not to be as immersed in that position.
1: Right, okay. That actually was gonna, uh, my next question. I just wondered about your own um, backgrounds uh, and what has led to vitalization. Are there particular theorists who have been um, particularly important for both of you in, in leading to these these ideas?
2: Do you want me to go for Sure. Okay. Um, Well, for one, I would say that our conversations, like Rachel and I are good friends and colleagues, and for whatever reasons, we have connected around a real interest in um, what psychoanalysis is in terms of the question of past, present, damage and repair versus creation and emergence. And it's just something that she and I found ourselves both talking about a lot. Um, I think that I can say that both of us have kind of an object relational um, orientation, meaning that we're very interested in the way people take in their relationships and live them out. so the the idea of vitalization really came out of largely this very vitalizing, exciting relationship that I think that we've created together. And um, on a you know kind of specific level for me, in a study group that I was in, I I started to read Ann Alvarez, and and while she comes from a totally different place theoretically in that she's really like a contemporary Kleinian who's integrated beyond and regulation theory and so forth and works with children. Um, her work is incredibly uh, progressive and hopeful and geared towards the future, even with patients who have been regarded as the most hopeless and inaccessible. So that, that's where, you know, I kind of hooked into the idea, but it was really in conversation with Rachel that that this all got exciting. And
1: ah. Yeah, Great. Rachel, do you have any other?
0: Yeah, no, I would just totally agree with what Amy said. I remember we, we had known each other just over email first, um, back and forth. And we, when we met in person, I remember just the, the, it felt very, our conversation felt alive right away. Uh-huh. Our first conversation was about Ann Alvarez. I don't know if you remember that, Amy. <laughs> and it was just so exciting to meet someone who I felt so aligned with and was so excited by the same ideas. Um, and Anne Alvarez is, is very inspiring in that she does look towards what can be created, um, that there is this kind of hopeful um, kind of energy to, to the writing and to her clinical um, examples um, that, that give you hope for something new, that there's something new could, could and can be created between two people. Um, so, so that was, that was so enlivening to talk to Amy about that. And I would say my other influences, I have an object relational tilt. Um, I would consider myself a relational analyst. Um, but I, I love Winnicott, um, beyond Thomas Ogden. Um,
1: you know, those, the, the goodies, the classic <laughs> people. Yeah. I, and in terms of, you know, what how you would define vitalization now i we, we can give a, a definition i thought actually it was quite beautiful in your introduction you were writing it in march of 2020 which was a very significant time for all of us and you wrote about being in that time but also seeing wow. the springtime in the park i thought that was a beautiful metaphor for what vitalization might be but please uh, Amy, correct me if I'm wrong, or, or do you have a working definition of um, vitalization?
2: Well, I, I, I was writing about vitalizing enactment, so I was trying to sort of reimagine an idea that's very core to um, relational second and really many different schools right now, which is this idea of analyst and patient meeting unconsciously in ways that are either dissociated or repetitive Mm -hmm. but are kind of understood to be uh, pathological and that enactments are meaningful insofar as they can be worked through survived and processed so my idea was that that enactments the coming together of two minds unconsciously can also be propulsive and can bring unlived experiences or nascent experiences Mm -hmm. Um and and like that was my that's my particular spin right on, on the idea and my particular interest was thinking about the way that we not only repair the old but actually come together and create things that are new for both people in you know in the dyad for the analyst and the patient.
1: So true. Such a good point. Uh, um I Yes, I, um, I get this. Uh, you know, there's one point you say, you talk about uncovering and mourning the old versus creating and generating the new. Another was um, archaeology as an older way of looking at it, um, or repairing, and now we're talking about bringing something to life. Um, I, I said a little bit in the beginning about Stephen Cooper's... Uh, Kind of view of how this was the cutting edge um uh either one of you um which can you tell can you talk to the audience a bit about how this is the cutting edge or how it fits into the past
0: hey, go ahead amy no no no, you go okay um <laughs> <laughs> good question i think it's kind of a difficult question to answer in a way um i guess i could just start out experientially i've been finding more my in my work I, I, that I've been finding more patients who are struggling with deaden deaden experiences inside um, mm. or, or pockets of deadness inside, mm-hmm. and I I don't know that it's been addressed like in a in a systematic way by psychoanalysis. Mm-hmm. Um, and so so first of all, just in terms of the content, I think that that is something new. Um, but I think also you know with relational psychoanalysis and kind of the, the turn of, of the uh, the relational turn, we call it, um, there's more oppor- there's opportunities for more. There's opportunities for more for more than just the archaeological model of uncovering the old. Um, there's something new and alive that, that is created between two people. And there, so there's opportunities for so much more um, that can be created, generated, um and and like amy said it's something new for both patient and analyst
2: and and i would say that the bothness is part or is inherent to what is mutative and to to just to extend a bit and address what stephen cooper i think was talking about is this this kind of um question or this place that the field is at right now, which is thinking about or querying the relationship between interpretation, symbolization and non-representational, non-symbolized action Mm -hmm. uh, in the field Mm -hmm. and, you know, kind of unconscious action, things that occur that Aren't about interpreting the truth of the patient's past experience, but creating something um, unbidden, as Danelle Stern would say, new and emergent in the relation through the relationship through the relational field. Right. I think he was that Stephen was kind of getting at that movement in the field from interpretation to relationship and even just queering that question about interpretation, representation, symbolization.
1: Right. I, I, I picked that up a lot. And um, I think my impression is there's a lot of, there are a lot of people who think that um, psychoanalysis means, um, you know, learning something about oh this was my childhood and now i'm this way because of this happened in my childhood and i think you're saying that's really not uh that's really not a fair characterization of of what is going on um i uh i thought why don't we talk about um the uh, amy if we could talk about um you have a case study of Joel, um, and you have this term vitalizing enactment, which you already introduced. I wondered if you could also uh, back up some and tell us about what an enactment uh, is.
2: An enactment um, kind of, it, the notion of enactment sort of is related to this idea that we were talking about earlier about analyst and patient, each bringing unconscious aspects of self into the room and into the relationship. And an enactment in its most basic way is this meeting of unconsciousnesses, but in ways that have frequently been construed as repetitive of old problematic patterns or dissociated traumatic experience. So an enactment is um, that that term means something that occurs like an acting in actually, as opposed to acting out rather than a talking out, thinking out, interpreting out. It's an event Mm. and usually it's kind of a seismic event Mm -hmm. where all of a sudden, you know, somebody says or does something or there's a... uh, A feeling that had never been there before or suddenly your patient is angry at you and you had no idea what you were stumbling into and uh, or hurt, or in love or something big occurs that that one or both had no idea was coming. And then we have frequently thought if we can just make it through without destroying the entire treatment, we can make sense of this and make use of it generally through interpretation and symbolization and move on. So an enactment is sort of an unconscious collision.
1: And Okay. And um, then a vitalizing enactment as opposed to a regular old enactment?
2: Yeah. Well, or or a big E enactment, as Anthony Bass made this distinction between a big E enactment, which is that huge collision, and a small E, which is just sort of the day-to-day bumping against one another. Sure. Um,
1: but the- Actually, vitality- can I, I just interrupt for one second? So is an enactment something that the analyst does or something that the patient- or It's the something does?
2: that happens between, in the relationship. And sometimes ah. it, it's frequently thought that it's initiated by the patient, um, but it can be initiated by the analyst as well. And that's a very relational idea that the analyst is bringing their own unconscious in all its complexities into the room and can actually be initiating a process, driving a process at times without knowing it.
1: Okay, I understand. So um, you, the, the so. old model was you just using interpretation. That was the 1950s model, right? Well,
2: I mean, that that's the high watermark that the analyst is mature enough and trained enough and expert enough that they can discern like a surgeon, the truth of the patient's experience. They can interpret that to the patient and that will make the unconscious conscious and therefore free up, um, resolve conflict and resolve psychopathology.
1: And that's a high watermark also because some patients aren't able to do that or that's not the way they're going to work in the analysis. Is that right?
2: Yeah. And most people just don't think that way anymore. Don't think that there is a single truth. Don't see the analyst. Don't see therapeutic action as just around interpretation. Even the contemporary Freudians don't.
1: But, okay. So, but I interrupted you. You were uh, again. uh, So a vitalizing enactment as opposed to a a regular one. Sorry to interrupt that. So, so if, if the,
2: enactments are generally considered to be both ubiquitous and potentially dangerous and destructive because they come from these areas of pathological repetition or dissociated trauma and my thought and this is you know related to what Alvarez was talking about is that we also meet in areas that are part of the unconscious that isn't just shards of painful trauma but are pieces of ourselves that we have not yet had the chance to fully uh, bring to life Mm
1: -hmm. and
2: that sometimes patient and analyst meet in areas that neither one that are embryonic for both of them and there there's something about the meeting that can be vitalizing in that it brings a new experience to life both in the process of the treatment and within, both part, within and between both partners.
0: Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive help supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized.
2: With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer, they've changed. So you don't have to download the new Bumble now.
1: Right, and you, um, your case study of uh, Joel was just really um, powerful, I must say. And I, um, you know, I can't. We don't have time to go through the whole thing, but. Um, there were a couple of, just, just to drop in on um, uh, a couple of quotes you said in there. One was, um, one I found very interesting was that you made a, a, a um, you know, a, you, you d- did a vital, vitalizing enactment or reaching out to him. It was very powerful. And afterwards, you were thinking, I don't know what that did. Maybe nothing, maybe something big, maybe. Um, but I found it very interesting. Here's a quote. Eventually, as it, it had made a big change, and, and eventually, um, one of the things that happened was he was talking about his, uh, the patient, Joel, was talking about how he liked basketball. And he told you the story of a of a Knicks game yeah. Yeah, and a, a game of, of uh, a player who wasn't uh, usually playing and came in and did great, and the team won. And um, you said, I was taken with his recounting of the Knicks game, this story of redemption and hope. Um, let me see here. Succeeding against all odds and coming to life and least expected. Although I had many clever connections to make, I said, I said only, how amazing, how great. I, I just thought that was very interesting. I, and, and it's kind of a, an example of this, not necessarily having to put it into words.
2: Yeah. And, and even feeling, and particularly with this patient, that words could be so, could stop things, could actually deaden things. And that what was so extraordinary about that moment or that session was his aliveness. It didn't really matter what we were talking about, although obviously this game itself was was such a hope, was such a wish and such a, a lovely metaphor for who he might be. Mm. Um, but I, I think for, for many analysts, when they question is this psychoanalytic or not, that it's really like the valence or affect of what's happening in the room Rather than the content exactly that um, feels so important. And it's like sometimes the valence and, and can be all around the past. So it's not like the past is insignificant at all. but it's just, I think what Rachel and I were trying to think about are other aspects of mutative action, you know that are more forward-moving and not necessarily that old equation. Mm -hmm. of um, you know linking past to present and the causal thing and i i just knew with this patient that something novel was happening and were i to go back to those sort of traditional um restrained uh interpretations that i was taught to make in Mm -hmm. my own training Mm -hmm. that that it would I, I felt that it would deaden it, that it would stop something quite wonderful that was happening.
1: Yeah, I, uh, I could feel that it was enlivening for him, that it was great <laughs> to be able to share that. Uh, another- can I, just take,
0: ask, can I just add something? Yeah, sure. Because um, I totally agree with everything that Amy is saying. Um, it's, I think we have these choice points um, as clinicians where we can either choose to go into the repetitive old pattern and make connections that way, which can be extremely useful or to invite the patient into something new. And the invitation into something new is not just a new part of themselves. It's it's an invitation into a new way of relating with us. And it's an an invitation for us to also step into that with them. Uh. I think that that's really the meaning. it's It's part of the meaningful, part of this kind of vitalizing enactment is exactly that moment. Yeah. And I, I mean I don't know if you agree, Amy. I'm just oh, saying, i to-
2: I totally agree. And and right. thank you. That I, I think that was a like a really important clarification of what our process is and what the choices are that you know that we're constantly sifting through.
1: Yeah. And um you have the this notion of uh countertransference urgency. Uh, could you explain that a little bit?
2: Yeah. Well, you know, I actually took that phrasing from Ann Alvarez because when she talked about this patient Robbie, this autistic, like unreachable boy who was slipping away from her before a break. And it, it was like this heartbreaking um, vignette in 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 her book. Um, she said that she reached out to him out of countertransference urgency and like looked him right in the face and was like, Robbie, Robbie, come back to me. And I I was so struck with the parallel of my experience. Yes. Like, I felt like I can't let this guy go, you know, right. and just drift away into his uh, nether zone. Right. And, you know, and in part because it stirred up something in me that, you know, as I said, related to my own history and, you know, what it's like to watch a
1: parent disappear. Right. That was very uh, profound. And I also had the sense reading your case study that um, he he may have been um, pushing in a way that you got to this point where you, you were really frustrated and you were unable to reach him. And um, he may have been pushing it there to that point where you were, I, I don't, that was just my take on it. I don't know if you if you felt that. It's something that both people create.
2: I totally agree with you. And I, and I think that that's, I, I think that there came a point, I kind of called it the tipping point, where it became unsustainable. And I think that, he was unconsciously pushing me and trying to, It's we, we say in one of the things that we say in psychoanalysis is, is sort of the the patient teaches you how to be their analyst. And I think that that in some way he was doing that. They just kept saying, no, not that way, not that way, not that way, not that way, you know, until something new emerged. Right. Rachel, do you have that sense also that, you know, at sometimes in change moments that the patient is in a way leading you?
0: Oh, absolutely. It's, it's almost uncanny the way, the way that when you look backwards uh, when the enactment happens and you look backwards at where you've been, you can kind of see the, 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 the progress of that, the progression of that towards that moment where I think there are these little subtle changes or subtle little enactments, like you said, That happen on the way that lead to this kind of transformative moment
1: right i remember hearing andrea salenza talk about she had this patient where you know he got to the point where he was uh, i can't remember exactly what it was but it was very threatening and she said that she often tells people about this patient and people say well of course he was you got to that he he was threatening you because he was communicating such and such and that's understandable and her response was, they missed the point. He had to get me to the point where I was um, rattled.
0: Exactly. Exactly. You have to, you know what Winnicott calls, he says, you have to live an experience together. But what, what Winnicott actually says is the mother and baby live an experience together. Um, and I think that's what we do as well. We have to kind of live through it with the patient mm. in, or, in order to, to, that's the emotional hook. There has to be some kind of energy behind it, some kind of passion or ethic behind it um, that drives, drives the, the movement of the therapy forward.
1: And I also keep imagining when I read about these things that the patient um, finds something new. And one of you, I was looking for, I know you mentioned this in the book, I couldn't find the quote, but um, the patient finds something new and that's also, uh, or feels geez, you know, I'm alive in a new way now. That's also very painful when you think about yes. what you've lost. And so it's not an all pleasant thing. It's actually pretty painful. Right. I'm, go ahead. But
2: I think feeling alive isn't just feeling happy. It's feeling, you yes. know, and yes. I, I don't know who said this, but it was sometime during the pandemic when, know i was reading something or watching something and it was about what is the purpose of life (laughs) and the Mm -hmm. purpose of life is to live it yeah you know with not to hide in your room and not to feel nothing it's to feel the joy the sorrow the pain the yearning the disappointment and like that's all vital
1: Yeah,
2: you know so
1: right and and i'll go back to solenza again i um, She, i think says that people um tend to think as you get older you get more dead you know and she or more deadened and she's totally against that as it is not true um and in a way that's another way this isn't i don't think this is so pathologizing because you're talking about people who can get this way just by living can become numb just by living or not because anything in particular happened, you know, wrong.
2: Rachel, Um, I think in your case that, that you were really grappling with very deadened parts of the patient. Mm
1: -hmm. Yes, absolutely.
0: And you're, you're right that it doesn't have to be that something has gone wrong, but that we could get kind of just um, numb to experience. And, um, and then we have to, first, we have to realize it and recognize it. I think that that's a big part of the challenge is recognizing the places where we're not because we kind of can sleepwalk through life, um, kind of feeling like everything is fine, but really kind of be avoiding certain kinds of experiences that bring up painful emotion. um, So that we're narrowing our lives down further and further and further without even realizing it. And so I think that's what's so helpful about analysis is that you start to see the place what's really missing and and the ways that you kind of um, Kept yourself small um, and and that and then missed out on the whole range of experience.
1: Right. Um and uh Rachel, I it's the same with your case of Jenny. Uh-huh. I um it, it was really moving. I I think um I'm just going I, I'd like to hear you uh tell the audience some about this concept of allegiance to absence. I also wanted to um, just read one of the things that struck me so much, Uh, you imagining with great clarity an image of Jenny and me sitting together in my office, an inert body laid out between us, gray corpse-like, it rested on a block with intravenous IV tubes coming out of each of its arms. One of the IVs ran from the prostrate body to Jenny's arm, and the other to mine. Each of us connected to this lifeless mass, infusing it with our own blood. Each of us feeding it, sustaining it, keeping it on life support in some limbo state between life and death. What a powerful, beautiful image. Yeah,
0: it was. It was a very powerful image for you. I imagine yeah, it really was. Yeah, yeah. Um, it was. Yeah, quite impactful. Um, I guess I'll, I'll start with allegiance to absence sure. yeah. I go to the case. Um, it's, it's this idea that um, not only do we have these kinds of deadened or um, absent places inside, but that we are, can be attached to them um, that we can, um, if we, let's say we have a neglectful or absent parent um, that that's an attachment, if there's an attachment to an absence Um, And so it can be, there can be defenses against letting go that you would think that if there's something absent or, or missing or deadened inside that you would just want to get rid of it, but that can bring up a lot of fear. And like you said, it can bring up a lot of mourning and grief for what's been missed out on. So so there's this allegiance to the absence. There's a holding on and attachment to the absence, even if it is kind of a bad object. um, It it carries some um, effective resonance for the patient. So, so that's that idea. And I think I think that image was so powerful because what it told me was that both my patient, Jenny, and I were both kind of committed to keeping this absence alive between us, this deadened object alive between us. We were both putting all of our energy, this lifeblood, into this, because she was so committed to therapy, I was so committed to her. And yet there was something so dead between us. Um, um, and so, this really brought to light the way we were both kind of, um, in an ongoing enactment of keeping things dead between us, not allowing things to get too lively or too exciting between us.
2: Right.
0: Uh, Right. And so, so this really brought to to light the way that I had been participating in it as well. Mm -hmm. And and that freed me, actually, once I realized that I was scared of something alive happening between us too, I couldn't you know analyze that myself and realize where that came from in myself and then free myself to be more alive with jenny
1: right and i I, again in in your case also you could see the mutual uh, dance but she actually has a panic attack it sounded like or something like that in the session which is going to drive you which is going to really put you at the edge now Mm -hmm. um i i think one of the. this is a volume, of course, and um, I, I think one of the things we haven't touched on is that you, you know, you have your feelers out there for what's happening with the other schools of thought in psychoanalysis, and this is a volume that's kind of, I guess, as I understand it, you've seen movements towards uh, vitalization in in lots of different schools, and this volume is trying to to collect all of them, all of them together. Could you speak to that and say something about what the different schools are that are represented?
2: Yeah, I feel like this is, it's, it's you know, relational psychoanalysis is a, is a huge umbrella at this point. So relational st- psychoanalysis started 40 years ago, with Stephen Mitchell and Greenberg, and really started with this idea of the critique of the classical model of the analyst is neutral and so forth. Um, and put forth the centrality of relationships with real people, with our internal objects. Since then, it has evolved so much and become an umbrella of schools, perhaps only or thought only united in terms of um, a belief in the centrality of relationships. This particular collection was really culling from many, many different lines of thought that I I I feel all fall within the rubric of relational psychoanalysis. You know, were we to do the book, a second book, for example, you know, I, I think it would be really interesting to to go to a Jungian, to go to a contemporary Freudian. We've, you know, to elicit other voices that didn't come in. Mm-hmm. But these are all voices that I think fall within the broad umbrella of big R relational psychoanalysis. Would you agree, Rachel?
0: I would. I think that, that, that that's exactly how I feel about it. And I think our intention was really to bring into dialogue um, different voices from different backgrounds um, within, I think, within the, mostly within the relational scope. Um, and and there, are so, there is such wide variation under the relational umbrella that it makes for a really interesting kind of dialogue, um, in my opinion. So.
1: Right. Yeah. No, I felt, I felt that also. Um, and, um, I guess, uh, I don't, um, running out of our 45 minute hour, I go back to your, um, you know, writing and writing, this introduction in March of 2020. Um, and so, do you have any thoughts generally about uh, vitalization and this um, unprecedented time that we're going through? Uh,
0: Go ahead.
2: Amy. Um, a couple of thoughts. One, certainly that there's a need for it. And I, I was saying earlier that, you know, people have responded to the volume, I think, in terms of gravitating towards the hope for hope, mm-hmm. you know, and, and I think, that it is a moment where we really do, you know, what is the Leonard Cohen, you know, the crack is where the light comes in, that we're we're really hoping for the light and hoping for something new and different. So I think it's, it's really relevant to going on and living, not repeating and going back and trying to be, you know, the analyst that you were or the anything that you were before. I think life has changed seismically, not just because of COVID, but I think obviously because of George Floyd and race and mm-hmm. you know, the white awakening long overdue, which has also needless to say, become part of the psychoanalytic conversation. So one of the things that I'm thinking a lot about is how to translate these ideas around vitalization, which are so deeply individual into a broader conversation uh, around cultural identity and subjectivity and race and difference. Um, I I think it's relevant. I haven't yet um, formulated that, but that's the direction that I want to go next. Rachel?
0: Yeah, I I agree completely. I think that's so very important um i think you know over the past couple of years we've been fighting to stay alive physically and psychically i mean i think especially psychically (laughs) i mean I'm, i'm in my experience it's been it's been hard to stay alive to what's happening because it's been so chaotic so difficult so so filled with grief um and so i think that that's so, I really feel like vitalization is kind of like a very important emergent topic right now in the midst of all of that. I think it's also important in the midst of these this time when we kind of have to fight to be in relationship with each other, to feel to feel our connections yeah. that kind of felt taken for granted before this. And now we yes. have to actually in, intentionally, uh, reach out to people and make plans and see each other over zoom and and it can be harder to, to it can be harder to feel those alive connections with one another so i think we have to do that much more to stay alive
1: right now and also politically it used to seem that it was taken for granted that there was a mutual or absolutely in retrospect it seems like there was a mutual respect and now there's like no we don't care about that. we're fine with just not talking you know
0: Isn't it so disheartening it's, <laughs> yeah. it's, It really
1: is. Yeah. Well, um, unfortunately we're out of time, but I, uh, I really appreciate you guys talk, you guys, y'all talking with me (laughs) today. Uh, Thank you so much.
0: much. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you.
2: Yeah. It's been vitalizing. It is. It really is. And we both so appreciate your interest in the book and in these ideas. And it, you know, is, book brings us joy and also makes it feel alive because in the midst of all the horror and trauma you know mm-hmm. sometimes you can feel like these ideas are are you know so meaningless yeah so, you know we really appreciate your appreciation
1: <laughs> yeah yeah no i i it was amazing i was just sort of here's a book okay i'll read it and then i was it, it really affected me very strongly so uh thank you. I'm gonna sign off now from New Books Network. Stop recording.